Good morning, everyone. We're going to uh, now turn our attention to the prophet Zephaniah. So you can either follow along in your Bible. I recommend the table of contents to find Zephaniah or uh, on the screens. But uh, I'm going to invite you to follow along with me. And uh, these are the words for our Advent text this morning. Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and a reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be with us in this time as we learn about these words and about the truth of uh, the prophet who spoke them and about how you fulfilled them and what that means for us here now as we seek to know more of what you're calling us to do, of who you are, and how we can be a part of it all. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. A little bit of background on the prophet Zephaniah. Maybe some of you are great biblical scholars, but it's always good to get a little background. He actually was a contemporary of Jeremiah, so if you were here two weeks and you remember the lesson then, uh, you have some of the background. But he's actually the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah, who has the reputation for being one of the only good kings in his time. And yet he lived in a very difficult time. It was a time uh, a lot of scholars think was uh, during Josiah's Uh, reforms, but then also uh, the reality that even though he's bringing reforms, that they're not enough, um, that Israel's too far gone into their idolatry. And so he is really preaching and bringing these uh, poetic, prophetic words in a time where it was the final decades of the southern kingdom of Jerusalem. And so really what that meant was that Uh, the consciousness of the Hebrew people was being totally adjusted. They thought there was no way that Jerusalem would ever fall, and yet here they were on the verge of just that. 
Um, this would have been to change everything in their world, to just have a total upheaval in what it meant to be God's people and what that meant for their future and their life. And so Zephaniah brings uh, words, he brings words, poetic words of judgment against foreign nations, but then he also brings his critique into the house of Israel. And one of the ways we might conceptualize this is that uh, in Israel at that time that the temple would have been a place where Yahweh was worshipped and known, but there were just outside of the temple all other kinds of idols that were being sold and worshipped from all other nations of the Philistines and the Moabites and the Ammonites. And so this was something that was concerning to God and to the prophet. What I really want us to look at this morning from our text is the prophetic imagination. You remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at this symbol, this image of a prophetic imagination coming forward from the prophet Jeremiah in the midst of his dark time, in the parallel time actually, and that was the image of a righteous branch, right? So here in the sanctuary, we see all these images of branches everywhere, and for Jeremiah, this image of a righteous branch was like a shoot out of a stump of a tree that had been cut down, but then there's this one shoot, this remnant for the people that would humble themselves and to reform their ways and to follow after Yahweh, that there would be this, this shoot, this small branch that would come up out of the house, and that would be uh, the creator and the lineage, this righteous branch of what we experience um, in the tree of life, the family of God that we are a part of even today. So this prophetic imagination in the midst of a difficult time to dream of a different world where things would look different. Or Micah, last week we had a sermon from Simon. He preached on Micah and this image of how uh, the people of God would be scattered and lost. And yet there would come a day when the good shepherd, when uh, there would be this uh, this one good shepherd who would come and seek and save the lost and return all of the lost sheep and would be the good shepherd. And we also have that image, I don't know if you noticed last week, in our manger, right? As Jesus was born in a manger and there was shepherds around these are ways in which we see the prophets hundreds of years before bringing forward this imagination that God is working behind the scenes to bring forward the Messiah. And he will come in these images. And then, then that's what uh, we're building as we build the images that were present at Jesus' birth. And then today, the image that I want us to think about from Zephaniah as we just read, is a God who sings with delight over his people. We must pay close attention to Zephaniah's imagination, and we can ask the question, how can these specific, hope-filled, creative words come from times of moral and spiritual blackout? How is that possible? that the present reality for Zephaniah was very dark, and yet his attention was on something else. One of the most helpful theologians 
in understanding the prophets is the theologian Walter Brueggemann. And he wrote a book that I highly recommend if you want to go deeper and get all academic and thinky that you should look at called The Prophetic Imagination. Uh, this is one of the most important books. It's read at most seminaries, and it teaches on the office of prophet and what the role of a prophet was. And so I'm going to read to you a quote. So you've got to put your, your theologian cap on for a second here as you hear these words. The prophet engages in futuring fantasy. The prophet does not ask if the vision can be implemented. For questions of implementation are of no consequence until the vision can be imagined. So before anything practical about how we're going to execute on this vision, the prophet's job is to just be creative, to think of everything that's possible. The imagination must come before the implementation. Our culture is competent to implement almost anything and to imagine almost nothing. The same royal consciousness that made it possible to implement anything and everything is the one that shrinks imagination because imagination is a danger. So a threat from the ro- to the royal consciousness, that might be Pharaoh, the powers at B, who seeks to shrink the imagination is to bring forward thinking of alternative realities and creativity and artistry. Thus, every totalitarian regime is frightened of the artist. It is the vocation of the prophet to keep alive the ministry of imagination, to keep on conjuring and proposing futures alternative to the single one the king wants to urge as the only thinkable one. One way to say this is that we can say we can be incredibly efficient and yet totally unaware. And that's what Pharaoh would like. That's what the royal consciousness would like. We see this profoundly in the Exodus narrative as the Hebrew people are oppressed and they're oppressed with a tactic. The tactic of Pharaoh is to make the Hebrew people build bricks over and over and over. And if Pharaoh is able to keep them building bricks, they do not have time to imagine an alternative reality to the reality that they're experiencing. And even though Pharaoh tries to do this, he's unsuccessful and the Hebrew people are able to uh, continue to have uh, children. And this is a representation of new birth and new life. And so even though they're being oppressed, they're still bringing forward new life. And so Pharaoh is offended by this reality and he doubles down and he makes them work harder. And he says, no, you must work harder and now you're going to fetch the straw to make the bricks and keep you occupied and busy so that you can never imagine an alternative reality. So maybe we can relate to this sensibility in our rushed world and our busyness in this very practical 
idea that we have a lot to get done and we have bills to pay and mouths to feed and responsibilities and that can consume us. That can occupy most of our bandwidth. All of the space within us can be occupied with this busyness. And interestingly, because we're reading prophets that are speaking beyond the Exodus but would have been very aware of the Exodus, what is being pointed out by Zephaniah in his time is that Pharaoh or this royal consciousness can also make its way into the Hebrew people. And the way that it makes its way into the Hebrew people is that they're 400 years removed from that experience. And they've gone uh, through this uh, liberating uh, of moving out into the wilderness and freedom as God parted the Red Sea and the Israelites were liberated from their slavery. And then they're wandering in the wilderness for long enough that they begin to actually get nostalgic for what was. We see this profoundly, and we learned about this in Sunday school, from Exodus chapter 32, where Moses is up and he's with the Lord in Mount Sinai, and he's getting the Ten Commandments, but he's up there a very long time. And so what do the Hebrews do down at the bottom of the mountain, they build a golden calf. And many scholars point out that this golden calf was probably patterned after the Egyptian bull god Apis. You see, they, they were in the wilderness, and so they yearned for something more consistent, for a simpler time. Even though... Uh, it was a time of oppression. They've forgotten or they've minimized the experience of oppression, and now they're longing for something practical, some, some experience of, of what's in front of them, something concrete. And so they return in their minds back to Egypt. And so what I want to look at is this comparison between the God who sings and rejoices, and this idea of nostalgia. A nostalgia that I think in small doses we all love in this season, right? Uh, as we pick our favorite Christmas movie. I know in our household there's this way in which we just, you know, have the same movies we watch, the same songs that we sing, and there's this, this sense by which, you know, Christmas is this time of looking back over the year. And none of that is intrinsically bad in and of itself, right? There's this sense of, of, of just kind of like, okay, we do this every year, and uh, it's part of our tradition, and so much of that uh, puts us in a moment. But what's important is also to think about what God's doing now. That is different. Even though we sing the same songs, we're different. And we've been through experiences that cannot be changed. And that shapes the way we hear the Christmas message. That shapes the way we sing the Christmas song. Some years with great hope and other years with sorrow. And God is always up to something new. And so we must add to this as well 
you know, as we think about it in our present time, that the pandemic has shifted our lives dramatically, and that's added to this greater shift that's happening as we move from an industrialized society into a digitized society. And so we're experiencing wilderness. And I don't know about you, but when we're in the wilderness, part of uh, the, the sensibility, our natural reaction might be to want to go back. I don't know if you have the experience of looking at uh, pre-pandemic pictures of yourself, but I can look at myself pre-pandemic and it's like, oh, there's less bags under the eyes, you know, there's less twitching going on. I'm not going to comment on other changes that might have happened in that season. But I think you can understand this, that there's a way by which there's this longing, oh, man, like, oh, how innocent pre-pandemic Peter was, you know. Uh, but there's no going back. There's no returning. And this actually can make its way um, into our experience of God as well, that we can just be nostalgic for how we encountered God in times past. And the author Richard Rohr says this, he says, the last experience of God is frequently the greatest obstacle to the next experience of God. The last experience of God is frequently the greatest obstacle to the next experience of God. We see this profoundly on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Peter's up there, you remember, and man, can you imagine this experience, seeing Yahweh come down and make Jesus, his teacher, leader, friend, shine with the light of God. And there's Moses and Elijah, and he has his crew up there, and they just have this amazing time with the Lord. And what's Peter's reaction? His reaction is we should stay up here. We should make some booths. Let's package this thing up. Let's, let's make this the experience. I don't want to leave this place or this time. But you know the story that Jesus says, no, we must go down the mountain. We must go back into the real world. Jesus came to be down off the mountain and in the real thing. Maybe you've had the experience something like, hey, I had a really good quiet time a few weeks ago what tea was I drinking again, and what time was it, and um, how do I repeat that experience? What was I reading and thinking about? Why did I have such a good time with the Lord then? Or I can remember coming off the mountain with the youth many times and coming back, wondering why we couldn't get that experience on the mountain back at youth group. Well, that's because God is always there to surprise us and is inviting us to be present in our present moment and God will not be packaged or reproduced. One of uh, the interesting quotes from the artist Picasso goes like this. He says, you can honor tradition by wearing your grandfather's hat or by having grandchildren. There's a way in which we can pay homage to the past with aesthetics instead of letting the tradition move us forward and doing what those before us did in their time for our time. The psalmist in Psalm 40 says, Sing to the Lord a new song. So we, we can be careful, right? We need to be careful about nostalgia. 
especially as we're in this cozy sanctuary. I mean, it is cozy in here, right? And it's just so wonderful. But there were some important lessons that we learned out in the parking lot and when we were just on Zoom. And I think God wanted to speak to us and pause us in those moments and to say to us, you know, what is our worship all about? Are we here to repeat the past or are we here to let God do a new thing in our midst? And what was true about the parking lot is we couldn't forget it. It was going to be a new way to worship and a new way to sing. And so we need to remember now that we get to come back to the cozy sanctuary that God is still up to something new this year in us. And we must look for it. This is where it gets fun and exciting is when we look at this image of Zephaniah that on this journey, on this journey into something new, for which were for the people of God uh, in that time was a pillar of cloud and fire that was leading them through the uncertain wilderness of God's very presence there, that there's a soundtrack for the journey. There's a song going on. This song that Zephaniah teaches us uh, is the song of God of rejoicing over his people that will come in that day. Singing is also such an important part of this season. I just felt everyone lean in as we sing those wonderful songs today. And it has this deep, rich lineage. And we can see throughout Scripture, especially in climactic moments, especially in the community of Israel, that what the natural response is is to bring a song a creative song, an expression of what's going on. The only way to really capture what's going on is to move from just talking to singing. One of the most beautiful places we find this is in the Psalms of Ascent um, from places like Psalm 126, whereas the people of God started at the bottom of the mountain in Jerusalem and walk their way towards the temple that they would sing songs together. These were songs for their journey to the temple to meet with their Lord, and they would sing songs like this. When the Lord restores the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Because there's something about dreaming that is the byproduct of being restored. When you go to a bad place, it's hard to have dreams or visions of the future, and it's easy to be preoccupied with the busyness. But the invitation from the prophetic imagination is to hear the song again and to respond to the song with our own songs. You know, Zephaniah couldn't imagine our printed Bibles. He couldn't imagine our instruments. He couldn't imagine a microphone or a live stream. But what he could see was that on this side of Jesus, that there was going to be a lot of singing. A whole lot of singing. And he showed us that our faith should never limit our imaginations. That our Christianity shouldn't make us smaller, that our scripture shouldn't make us smaller and limit our imaginations, but it should be the very thing that makes us bigger and more expansive and more creative.
especially as we look at the challenges of our time. May we never forget to dream and imagine alternative futures and not let just a practical side of us say, well, that's never going to happen. But instead to dream dreams and have visions and to celebrate a God who brings new life into the world. One of the most profound places where we see the fulfillment of Zephaniah's vision is during Jesus' birth when it says this, suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to whom his favor rests. May that be the song in our hearts this morning. And I pray that God would sing to you in a way that you can be revived and restored and dream again with the creativity that he makes available for you and that you may see a future of wholeness and goodness and beauty. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Advent and we wait for you, Lord. We wait expectantly. We sing these songs of hope knowing that you're on your way and so give us patient hearts and remind us of your presence among us on the journey. And as we think of our days and our times as we leave for this place, I pray we would also hear the song there and know that you love us, that you care for us, and you rejoice over us. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you made that possible. In your precious and holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Will you